Greetings, fellow explorers, and welcome to the Lore Explorer podcast, where we take a look at the lore and history of various media, from video games and movies to real-life figures and events. This week, we'll be taking a look at the Pirates of the Caribbean. This topic was chosen by patron Christian Hess. Thank you for all your support. We'll eventually cover all of the movies, but we're going to start out with the first movie in the series, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Rather than go over the beat-by-beat story of the film, I want to talk about the major people, locations, and myth, and how they tie into real history. At this point, I'm sure the majority of people have at least seen the first film. With that, let's get into it. The first two major characters we are introduced to are Will Turner and Elizabeth Swan. Much of their history plays out in the films, but there is a little backstory that happens before. As an infant, Will Turner lived with his parents in North Carolina until his father abandoned him and his mother to join the crew of the Black Pearl. Through unknown circumstances, Will moved with his mother to England, where she raised him by herself. Will had believed his father was a merchant and a good, respectable man who obeyed the law. When his father sent an Aztec medallion to him, Will thought it was just an exotic trinket that his father had picked up on his travels. At some point in his youth, Will's mother died. After his mother's death, Will Turner began looking for his father while wearing the gold medallion, soon boarding a British merchant vessel that traveled to the Caribbean Sea. However, Hector Barbosa's cursed crew attacked Will's ship. This is when we first see him in the film floating on a piece of driftwood. The only history given for Elizabeth before the films is that she grew up in London. Her mother died early in her childhood, leaving her father to raise her on his own. She was fascinated by piracy and romanticized it by singing songs about them. The first location we encounter is the town of Port Royal. For the most part, the history provided in the film was fairly accurate, with the exception of the film characters and the events therein. While talking about Port Royal, we'll also talk about the change from enlisted privateers to outlawed pirates. Port Royal was a major city in a bustling harbor town situated on the western end of Palisados in Jamaica. The Taino Indians occupied this area for centuries before European settlement. Although it is not known whether they ever settled at the spot itself, they did inhabit other parts of Jamaica. The Spanish first landed in Jamaica in 1494 under the leadership of Christopher Columbus. Permanent settlement occurred when Juan de Esquivel brought a group of settlers in 1509. They came in search of new lands and valuable resources like gold and silver. Instead, they began to cultivate and process the sugarcane. Spain kept control of Jamaica mostly so that it could prevent other countries from gaining access to the island, which was strategically situated within the trade routes of the Caribbean. Spain maintained control over the island for 146 years until the English took control following their invasion of 1655. For much of the period between the English conquest and the 1692 earthquake, Port Royal served as the unofficial capital of Jamaica. In 1657, as a solution to his defense concerns, Governor Edward Doley invited the Brethren of the Coast to come to Port Royal and make it their home port. The Brethren was made up of a group of pirates who were descendant of cattle-hunting buccaneers who had turned to piracy after being robbed by the Spanish. These pirates concentrated their attacks on Spanish shipping, whose interests were considered the major threat of the town. These pirates later became legal English privateers who were given letters of marque by Jamaica's governor. 
Around the same time that pirates were invited to Port Royal, England launched a series of attacks against Spanish shipping vessels and coastal towns. By sending the newly appointed privateers after Spanish ships and settlements, England had successfully set up a system of defense for Port Royal. Port Royal provided a safe harbor initially for privateers and subsequently for pirates plying the shipping lanes to and from Spain and Panama. Buccaneers found Port Royal appealing for several reasons. Its proximity to trade routes allowed them easy access to prey, but the most important advantage was the port's proximity to several of the only safe passages, or straits, giving them access to the Spanish main from the Atlantic. The harbor was large enough to accommodate their ships and provided a place to careen and repair these vessels. It was also ideally situated for launching raids on Spanish settlements. By the 1660s, the city had, for some, become a pirate utopia and had gained a reputation as the Sodom of the New World, where most residents were pirates, cutthroats, or prostitutes. Recent genealogical research indicates that Blackbeard and his family moved to Jamaica where Edward Thatch Jr. is listed as being a mariner in the Royal Navy, aboard the HMS Windsor in 1706. Port Royal benefited from this lively, glamorous infamy and grew to be one of the two largest towns and the most economically important ports in the English colonies. At the height of its popularity, the city had one drinking house for every ten residents. Following Henry Morgan's appointment as lieutenant governor, Port Royal began to change. Pirates were no longer needed to defend the city. The selling of slaves took on greater importance. Upstanding citizens disliked the reputation the city had acquired. In 1687, Jamaica passed anti-piracy laws. Consequently, instead of being a safe haven for pirates, Port Royal became noted as their place of execution. Gallows Point welcomed many to their death, including Charles Vane and Calico Jack, who were hanged in 1720. About five months later, the famous woman pirate Mary Reed died in the Jamaican prison in Port Royal. Two years later, 41 pirates met their death in one month alone. The late 17th and early 18th centuries, particularly between the years 1716 to 1726, are often considered the golden age of piracy in the Caribbean, and pirate ports experienced rapid growth in the areas in and surrounding the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. Countries employed privateers to conduct raids on rival countries to steal wealth, colonies, and ships throughout the 1600s. Captain Henry Morgan was a privateer who had fought for the English against the Spanish. In 1668, he sacked Portobello, went after Maracaibo, and in 1671 attacked Panama. During his raid on Panama City, he was arrested and brought back to England. However, as the battles between England and Spain persisted, King Charles II had him knighted. He was subsequently released and ended up serving as governor of Jamaica. Francois Lolonnais was a French pirate acknowledged as one of the most successful pirates who committed land attacks, aside from capturing numerous commerce ships. In 1666, Lolonnais sailed from Tortuga with a fleet of eight ships and a crew of 440 pirates to sack Maracaibo in what is modern-day Venezuela. En route, Lolonnais crossed paths with a Spanish treasure ship which he captured, along with its cargo of cocoa beans, gemstones, and more than 260,000 Spanish dollars. 
Lolone himself was an expert torturer. His techniques included slicing portions of flesh off the victim with a sword, burning them alive, or tying knotted woodling around the victim's head until their eyes were forced out. Over the following two months, Lolone and his men raped, pillaged, and eventually burned much of Maracaibo, before moving to San Antonio de Gibraltar on the eastern shore of Lake Maracaibo. Despite being outnumbered, the pirates slaughtered 500 soldiers of Gibraltar's garrison and held the city for ransom. Despite the payment of the ransom, Lolonese continued to ransack the city, acquiring a total of 260 pieces of eight, gems, silverware, silks, as well as a number of slaves. Word of his attack on Maracaibo and Gibraltar reached Tortuga, and Lolone earned a reputation for his ferocity and cruelty. He was given the name the Bane of Spain. The most well-known pirate has to be Edward Teach, otherwise known as Blackbeard. He was an English pirate who operated around the West Indies and the eastern coast of Britain's North America colonies. Quite tall and broad in his shoulders, during combat his adversaries feared him, as he looked demon-like with pieces of slow-burning fuse hidden in his hair and beard to give the impression that his hair was on fire. His cruel appearance was enhanced by high leather boots, a long black coat, as well as a wide hat. Unlike many other pirates, Blackbeard acted in a much more intelligent way, as he did not engage in fighting under any circumstances, preferring to outwit those who he would attack. He was, however, later romanticized as the traditional tyrannical bloodthirsty pirate. In the late 1710s, he would raid numerous Spanish vessels across Mexico and Central America. But he did not stop there. As his sinister reputation grew, he realized he could use it to greater his advantage. So in 1718, he sailed north towards Charleston, where he attacked a vibrant English colony. Capturing any vessel that attempted to enter or leave Charleston, he took many people as prisoners. He would then trade them for gold, medicine, and other valuables. After spending some months in North Carolina, Blackbeard was eventually killed in a conflict with the British Navy. Teach's corpse was thrown into the inlet and his head was suspended from the bowsprit of Maynard's sloop so that the reward could be collected. Due to a high degree of tension among the colonial powers, most of the ships stationed in the Caribbean were more concerned with engaging with each other than they were engaging with the pirates of the time. However, this same time period saw a resurgence of piracy in the Caribbean due to the growth of the slave trade. Pirates saw the slave trade as a new lucrative source of income. They could easily capture a crew and ransom the valuable slaves that were their cargo. As the piracy increasingly interfered with the lucrative slave trade come from the Caribbean, colonial powers had a changing attitude towards piracy. Military presence had been growing in the Caribbean waters for some time, but now the Royal Navy especially was more concerned with the growing issue of slavery, increasing the number of ships dedicated to policing slavery from 2 in 1670 to 24 by 1700. This early 18th century resurgence of piracy lasted only until the Royal Navy and the Spanish Guardacostas' presence in the Caribbean were enlarged to deal with the threat. Also crucial to the end of this era of piracy was the loss of the pirates' last Caribbean safe haven at Nassau. 
After this, the age of piracy was all but done with only small remnants remaining in the Caribbean. The film takes place in a rough time frame between 1720 and 1750, and a time after the outlaw of piracy. That's why Port Royal in the film has a strict no-pirate policy, with pirates being hung outside the bay as a warning. In the film's universe, sometime during the early 1720s, King George appointed Weatherby Swan as the governor of Port Royal. Making Port Royal their new home, the Swans would reside in a mansion overlooking the port town. Although Port Royal's street markets overflowed with tropical fruit, the air was far from sweet. The town expanded over the years of Swan's governorship, and the local sewer system was unable to cope, giving the air a distinct odor. Fort Charles was the stronghold of Port Royal. It sat on a bluff overlooking the harbor and was one of England's biggest government forts in the Caribbean. It had 104 guns and a garrison of around 500 men. It actually still stands today, though weathered from the elements all these years later. In the film, this is where Norrington receives his promotion to Commodore. Now to talk about the main pirates of the film. The son of Captain Edward Teague, Jack Sparrow was born on a pirate ship and a typhoon. Before he was known as Captain Jack Sparrow, he was simply known as Jack, a teenage stowaway who, even then, had a desire for adventure. Jack first sailed on the Barnacle with a young ragtag crew on a quest to locate the legendary Sword of Cortez. As a young pirate, he earned the name Jack Sparrow when he trapped the notorious Spanish pirate hunter Captain Salazar in the Devil's Triangle. Years after his teenage adventures, an encounter with the infamous rogue pirates forced him to abandon the pirate life and take employment in the East India Trading Company. After five years of faithful service, during which he sailed across the, all the seven seas, he was given command of the Wicked Winch, a ship owned by Cutler Beckett, the EITC director for West Africa. As Beckett's employee, Jack searched for the mystical island of Kerma and its legendary treasure, until he decided to betray Beckett and keep the island and the inhabitants safe from Beckett and his slave traders. When Beckett contracted him to transport a cargo of slaves to the Bahamas, Jack chose to liberate them and steal the winch from Beckett himself. However, Beckett's men managed to find him and branded him as a pirate, while the winch was set aflame and sunk. After striking a bargain with Davy Jones to resurrect his beloved vessel, Jack had the winch renamed to the Black Pearl and began the pirate life anew. At some point, Jack Sparrow became one of the nine pirate lords, his domain being the Caribbean Sea. Throughout his years as an infamous pirate of the Caribbean, Jack embarked on many adventures, several of which involved gaining items of unique value. Jack was the captain of the Black Pearl for two years during which time he searched for the Shadow Gold. But when he was after the treasure of Isla de Muerta, Jack lost the pearl in a mutiny, led by his first mate, Captain Hector Barbosa. After eight years had passed since the mutiny against him, Jack became an infamous pirate of the Seven Seas, but he still wanted the Black Pearl as his own. Through unknown circumstances, Jack spent time with Anna Maria before leaving her, in which he stole her boat, the Jolly Mont, or, as the pirate himself put it, borrowed without permission, but with every intention of bringing it back. With his new boat, Jack was free to sail the seas, ultimately ending up at Shipwreck City. 
Like most pirates, Hector Barbosa came from England's West Country and his mother was Irish. Nothing is known of Barbosa's father, but his last name indicates possible Portuguese or Spanish origin. Although Barbosa's history prior to engaging in piracy remains mainly shrouded in mystery, it was known that he grew up on a farm, possibly somewhere near Bristol, and he ran away to sea at the age of 13 because he came from a background of poverty. He would be on board ships where he'd seen very grand cabins and the captains living in spacious and elegant quarters. Barbosa may have had earnest desires to be a man of the sea, but realized that he could gain a lot more if he broke the rules, lied to people, and killed a few in the process. Barbosa became greedy, with horrible social pretensions. He became a horrible liar, pretending to be a gentleman of the sea and a dirty, cunning rogue. Not much is known about Barbosa's early adventures, except that he became a capable pirate. In his early 40s, Barbosa was the captain of a small ship named Cobra. After he plundered a French bark loaded with ivory, his ship was attacked by another pirate ship in the waters north of Bermuda. His ship sank and he almost drowned, but he was saved by two of his crew members, Pintel and Rigetti. Two months later, Barbosa and his men were picked up in Tortuga by Don Rafael, pirate lord of the Caribbean. Don Rafael took them to Shipwreck Cove, where Barbosa told the tale of his disaster to assembled pirates. During that time, he met Jack Sparrow for the first time. A few months later, Jack Sparrow discovered what ship sank the Cobra. It was the Koldunya, a ship of Borea, the Russian pirate lord of the Caspian Sea and Barbosa's old friend. Jack immediately informed Barbosa of his discovery, and the pirate captain recognized the Koldunya as the rogue ship. Teague, the keeper of the code, and Don Rafael joined them on the docks, and they agreed to search Boya's ship. Later, Teague called for an official court of inquiry, and the pirate lords assembled in the great chamber. At the court, all the witnesses told their stories, but since there was not enough evidence against Boria, Teague decided to summon Davy Jones, the lord of the sea. Jones knew everything that happened in these watery kingdoms, and the brethren court spoke a magic call that brought Jones aboard the Troubadour, Teague's ship. When he asked about Boria's guilt, Jones recognized him as the leader of the rogue pirates, saying that he and his men sent many souls to the sea bottom without mercy. A few days later, Barbosa visited Boria in a prison, where Boria apologized for the destruction of Barbosa's ship. Boria even gave Barbosa his most precious token, a small block of wood, his piece of eight, the sign of a pirate lordship, thus making Barbosa the next pirate lord of the Caspian Sea. After that, Barbosa intended to join Captain Teague's fleet in rogue hunting. He gave Boria's piece of wood to one of his subordinates, Rigetti, who missed an eye and ordered him to keep it safe without learning its meaning. In unknown circumstances, Barbosa lost contact with Rigetti and his piece of eight. Five years after the escape of the rogues from Shipwreck Cove, while he was in Tortuga, Barbosa joined the crew of the Black Pearl, captained by Jack Sparrow. Barbosa was made Sparrow's first mate, and the crew set out from Tortuga to the Far East, sent by Teodalma to collect seven pieces of powerful magical potion called the Shadow Gold, and prevent an evil alchemist, the Shadow Lord, from destroying the pirate brethren. Sparrow and Barbosa traveled around the world, chased by the East India Trading Company and the Shadow Army 
but at the end they were able to defeat the Shadow Lord with the assistance of all the Pirate Lords of the Brethren Court. Two years after the adventure with the Shadow Gold, the Black Pearl sailed towards Isla de Muerta to find the lost treasure of Hernan Cortez. Although Barbosa didn't believe Jack Sparrow about the curse that was placed on the treasure, believing it was a ridiculous superstition, he went on the search anyway. Isla de Muerta was an island in the Caribbean that could not be found except by those who already knew where it was. But Sparrow had a map as to the approximate location of the island. Three days into the voyage, Barbosa was able to coax the bearings from Jack. The then-over-trusting Jack gave his bearings willingly to his loyal first mate, thinking that he could help find the island. That same night, Barbosa rallied the rest of the crew in a mutiny against Jack. They marooned him on an island, jokingly appointing him its governor, and gave him a pistol with one shot, to kill himself when the heat and thirst got too much. With the Pearl now under Barbosa's control, they then sailed towards Isla de Muerta. Prior to this, however, Barbosa attained his precious pet monkey, mockingly named Jack, after their old captain. Now, before we talk about the curse of Cortez, I want to give some history on Tortuga, the Isla de Muerta, and Hernan Cortez himself. The first Europeans to land on Tortuga were the Spaniards in 1492 during the first voyage of Christopher Columbus into the New World. At sunrise, Columbus noticed an island whose contours emerged from the morning mist. Because the shape reminded him of a turtle shell, he chose the name of Tortuga. In 1625, French and English settlers arrived on the island of Tortuga after initially planning to settle on the island of Hispaniola. The French and English settlers were attacked in 1629 by the Spanish, commanded by Don Frederic de Toledo, who fortified the island and expelled the French and English. Over the next 40 years, the French, the English, and the Spanish would fight over this island until it was free of Spanish control by 1670. By 1670, the Buccaneer era was in decline, and many of the pirates turned to log cutting and wood trading as a new income source. At this time, a Welsh privateer named Henry Morgan started to promote himself and invited the pirates on the island of Tortuga to set sail under him. They were hired by the French as a striking force that allowed France to have a much stronger hold on the Caribbean region. Although piracy was officially abolished on Tortuga by the Treaty of Utrecht, thanks to the local governor, Tortuga remained a safe haven for pirates, smugglers, and all sorts of outlaws. A dank and dirty port, Tortuga became a place where the tides seemed to have swept together the sum of pirates, privateers, prostitutes, thieves, and drunkards. With its cantered, rotting docks, weather-beaten buildings, and odd assortment of livestock running free, Tortuga was far less civilized than that of Port Royal. Isla de Muerta was a phantom island located in the Caribbean. Marked on no map, it could not be found except for those who knew where it was. This island only exists in the Pirates of the Caribbean universe. I couldn't find any evidence of any such island in the real world. It was the location of the treasure of Hernan Cortez. The island itself was surrounded by a thick fog and a graveyard of wrecked ships, an area that was shark-infested. The island remained largely unexplored, save for the caverns most notably used by Barbosa and his crew to store their plundered loot. The cursed treasure of Cortez most likely refers to the attempted peace offering that King Montezuma II of the Aztec Empire offered him in exchange for the letting 
of his people live in their conquest. Hernan Cortes was a Spanish conquistador who led an expedition that caused the fall of the Aztec Empire and brought large portions of what is now mainland Mexico under the rule of the King of Castile in the early 16th century. Cortes was part of the generation of Spanish colonizers who began the first phase of the Spanish colonization of the Americas. In 1519, Cortes arrived on the outskirts of the capital of the mighty Aztec Empire. It has been said that the Aztec Emperor Montezuma II, Cortes and his men were regarded as not mortals, but as gods. Cortes himself was said to be the returning Aztec god, Quetzalcoatl. Thus, the Spanish conquistadors were welcomed by Montezuma with pomp and circumstance. Yet, eventually these so-called gods would betray Montezuma and his people, demonstrating to the Aztecs that there was nothing godlike about Cortes and his crew. Montezuma's offering of gold to Cortes and his men was done in the hope that the gods would go away. This bribe, however, failed to get rid of the Spanish conquistadors. Instead, it fueled the Spanish greed for gold even further. As a result, Cortes decided to place Montezuma under house arrest. Subsequently, with the help of their Tlaxcalan allies, the conquistadors set up their base in one of the city's temples and began ransacking the capital city for its treasures. In the following months, many of the inhabitants were tortured and killed by Cortes's men in their attempt to obtain even more Aztec treasure. The last straw came in late May 1520, when the conquistadors massacred many of the Aztec nobility during a religious festival at the city's main temple. This prompted a fierce reaction from the Aztec population, who rose against the conquistadors. The besieged Spaniards, in an attempt to save themselves, decided to use their hostage, Montezuma, to pacify his subjects. This failed, however, and Montezuma was killed, either mortally wounded by the conquistadors themselves, or by the rocks thrown by the inhabitants. The conquistadors had only one option left, to flee the city. As the Aztecs had removed all the bridges connecting the city to the mainland, the conquistadors had to build a portable bridge over the causeway. On the night of the 1st of July, 1520, the Spanish made their escape. Their movement, however, was detected, and the Aztecs attacked the fleeing conquistadors, killing many in the process. Cortes lost not only many of his men, but also the Aztec treasure that was amassed over the previous months. As for how the story ended in May 1521, only a year later, Cortes returned to exact his revenge. Aztec warriors and civilians fled the city as the Spanish forces mercilessly attacked, even after their surrender, slaughtering thousands of civilians and looting the city. As many as 240,000 Aztecs are estimated to have died, according to the Florentine Codex, during the 80 days. After a three-month siege of the city, the city fell on 13 of August, 1521. This marked the final fall of the Aztec Empire, and Cortes became the ruler of a vast Mexican empire. The treasure of Cortes in the film most likely alludes to this event. The tale of the curse isn't mentioned in the real-world history of the treasure at all, but it plays a big part in the mythology of the film. The treasure of Cortes consisted of 882 identical pieces of Aztec gold and a stone chest as blood money to not kill the Aztec people. But, like in reality, it only fueled his greed.
In response, the heathen gods placed a curse upon the gold. Any mortal who removed a piece of the gold from the chest would be punished for eternity. The only way to lift the curse was to return all the Aztec gold pieces to the chest and a blood debt repaid to the heathen gods. The heathen gods were basically any gods or goddesses that were not Christian, Jewish, or Muslim faith. Ultimately, the treasure of Cortes would end up in the caves of Isla de Muerta. According to legend, after a ship carrying the treasure ran aground on the island, killing all but one of its crew, the lone survivor hid the treasure ashore before dying himself. Ever since then, the dark magic of the treasure cursed the island itself over time. Captain Barbosa and his crew would then spend all 882 pieces of the Aztec gold on drink, food, and pleasurable company. Soon afterwards, the crew realized that they fell under the curse, suffering a living death in which they cannot feel or taste anything, and when they step into the moonlight, they became walking skeletons. Finally aware that it was the Aztec gold pieces that placed the curse upon them, Barbosa's crew returned to the Isla de Muerta to find a way to let the curse and end their punishment. There, they found out that the curse could be reversed only when every last piece of the Aztec gold was returned to the stone chest from which it came. It wasn't until Bootstrap Bill Turner was sent to the depths did the crew learn of an additional requirement, that all who stole from the chest had to pay the heathen gods in blood, which now seemed impossible with Bootstrap lost to them. But a chance of hope lied on Turner's child, who had both his gold medallion and Turner blood in his veins. Thus, Barbosa's crew set about, attempting to reclaim all 882 pieces of the treasure. This is where the film takes place. The kidnapping of Elizabeth, the capture of Will Turner, and restoring the curse. Barbosa is killed after the curse is lifted, the crew of the Black Pearls imprisoned by the British Royal Navy, and everyone lives happily ever after. Or, at least until the next film in the series. That wraps up the history of the characters, the curse, and the golden age of piracy. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I had a lot of fun researching for this one, and I look forward to doing an episode on Dead Man's Chest in the future. I want to thank Christian Hess again for this topic and his support, as well as Dalton Troy and Jimmy Perez for their continued support as well. If you would like to suggest a topic and become a patron to support the podcast, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thelorexplorer. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all in the next episode.